If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. If you'll turn with me to the book of Acts, I'll be reading out of the 8th chapter, verses 26 through 39. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a shepherd, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Here ends the reading, inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Perhaps it is the measure of a good teacher to ask whether or not any of his students can remember a single thing that he said in class that is after finals are over and you don't have to remember, was there ever a moment from class that stayed in your mind and lives there still? As you all know, I can remember things Fred Craddock said in class 40 years ago as if it was yesterday. Another influential teacher for me was Ernest Campbell, a Presbyterian minister who served the Riverside Church in New York City in the 1970s and Dr. Campbell had a particularly pithy way of putting big theological problems into memorable phrases. 
I took a continuing education class once from him, and he started the class this way. So, let me ask you all the most important question I can think of. Are you worshiping Christ or following Jesus? Campbell also was the first minister to preach a sermon about what it means for a human being to be trapped in the wrong gender identity long before anyone had heard the word transgender. The folks at Riverside still talk about this sermon in the 1970s. He also said this once while looking at a room full of newly minted clergy, quote, Surely there is no sight sadder in the eyes of God than that of a minister of the gospel who started out with a calling and ended up with a career. And lest we were all feeling just a little too full of ourselves, he said, Don't you all forget some of you who call yourselves the very right reverend whatever, that your thoughts are not God's thoughts even on your best days. He just said things like this. But it was about this remarkable story in Acts that I heard Campbell sum up the whole gospel in the most memorable way of all. Jesus of Nazareth said many things, said Campbell, but all of them can be summarized in two simple questions. To those who thought they were in, with God, in, like Pharisees, Sadducees, other religious professionals, or observant Jews who followed the law, kept their hands clean, and appeared above reproach, Jesus said, are you sure you're in? I know you think you're in, but are you sure you're in? And to all those who were certain they were out, those with diseases that some thought were a punishment from God, or those without power or status, the weak, the widow, the orphan, the mentally ill, maybe the notorious sinner about whom everyone whispered when she walked by, Jesus said this, are you sure you're out? I know you think you're out, but are you sure you're out? Now by out, of course, he did not mean what we often mean today by coming out, but rather outside of the reach of God's love. Because in a rigidly stratified world, Jesus knew that religion had become just another form of spiritual segregation. Some folks are in, some are out, and everything Jesus did revolved around challenging the assumption of both groups. In 1994, in response really to being dared to preach a sermon on the most controversial topic I could think of and thereby free up some space in the pews, this is a true story. I preached a sermon on this text that set Mayflower on a path toward become, becoming an open and affirming church. I didn't know it at the time. But if you will read our covenant of inclusion for the LGBT community that's framed and hanging in the narthex outside this door, you'll find a, a, several paragraphs in it about the Ethiopian eunuch. And that, my friends, is how the luminous web works. Take one eunuch, mix in one memorable Presbyterian minister, and add one unhinged young pastor in a free pulpit in front of free people, and what do you get? Open and affirming. I'd heard this story, of course, as a kid in Sunday school, but I, I suffered a rather considerable disadvantage when coming to understand it, understanding it, because, well, I hate to admit this, but I had no idea what a eunuch was. I mean, what was that, a short person who never got married? For some 
reason, when you said eunuch to me and I was a kid, I thought of an elf, someone who worked maybe at the North Pole and did not date. And I feel as if I'm channeling David Sedaris here, but <laughs> I know that, that um, eunuchism, which is a word that I just made up, has something to do with male sexuality of the deficient kind. But I really did not want the details. Remember, in this faraway land where I grew up, there were no ads for Cialis or Viagra on television. So when it came to sex, we just agreed that it's too important to talk about. In fact, I grew up at a time when you did not ask honest questions or get honest answers about sex. Uh, because if you asked those kinds of questions, people thought you were weird, and if someone answered, you thought they were weird or inappropriately graphic, as when my kids used to say to me, Dad, TMI, too much information. For years, in fact, we thought too much information about sex might be dangerous. Turns out, too little information about sex, that's what's dangerous. So to be clear, as this worldly crowd knows, an Ethiopian eunuch is a black man who has been castrated, de-sexed in order to serve the queen, or as my back alley dude friends would say, in order not to serve her, wink, wink. Obviously, it was believed by men, of course, that you cannot have a fully functioning black man working in close proximity to Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and put him in charge of the treasury, no less, without running the risk of, you know, some outbreak of jungle fever. Perhaps even the embezzlement of royal funds hushed up by their secret life together. So, you may be wondering, well, why would any self-respecting Ethiopian man agree to this mutilation? And the answer is what the answer has always been, for the money, of course. The same reason all sorts of unthinkable things happen. It was a good job with benefits, including travel by chariot. It made the eunuch into a powerful, albeit impotent, person. And as for why some people thought it was even necessary, well, let's not be naive. In the royal court, the same paranoia about male sexuality that exists to this day, remember we often castrated black slaves in America, made it impossible for those in power in ancient Jerusalem to trust men to behave or women to make their own decisions. Or maybe they thought they couldn't, whichever it was and is, this paranoia about sexual power, especially black male sexual power, is the same deep fear that underlies racism to this day, although it's seldom talked about in church, but we just did. So with regard to Campbell's dichotomy of the insider and the outsider, you've got yourself a triple outsider here. He's black, Gentile, and cursed with being, physically speaking, incomplete which in Judaism also made one unclean. You all know this, of course, because you all know Deuteronomy 23.1, right? Well, maybe not. In case you don't, I'll read it, and I'm going to have to read it without blushing. Number, this is a direct quote from the Bible, so I think I can do this. No one whose testicles are cut off or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, end quote. And this means that whether the castration was intentional or the result of an accident, 
That's the case. You're unclean. You are cut off in more ways than one. And forgive me for just throwing this in, but if you were a boy in Sunday school, is this not the best Bible memory verse ever? <laughs> me and my bro friends remembered it long after we'd forgotten who smited whom or begot what. But, but we knew that this was never going to be the answer to any Bible bowl question because nobody was ever going to make us say that out loud. <laughs> what I did not understand at the time, however, because no one guided me in my reading, is that this is perhaps the most powerful story in the Bible to argue in favor of welcoming all people regardless of sexual orientation into the full sacramental hospitality of the church. Why? Because this man bears a sexual mark that renders him an outcast, and the religious establishment has declared him unfit to worship God in the temple. But for some reason, he does not give up. In fact, he's cruising along in his chariot doing a little light reading. Well, okay, not so light. In fact, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And this man, who, who by the way, remains nameless, like so many women in the Bible, is obviously both literate and still searching for religious answers at a time when his own religious tradition has rejected him. Does that sound familiar? What's more, he lives in a time when having children is important, to put it mildly, and passing down your name to those children was how God blessed you, and this man is obviously not going to have any children of his own. We have a non-procreative situation here. Sound familiar? So he has no present because he's ostracized, and he has no future because he'll never be a father. Now listen to what he's reading in the chariot. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied to him who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, the story goes that the spirit sort of ordered Philip to go over to this chariot and join him. Some scholars have wondered if, in fact, the eunuch did not invite Philip over to sit with him. And this story is really as much about the conversion of Philip as it is about the conversion of the eunuch. But whichever it is, Philip runs up and hears him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asks a very interesting question. If you're a preacher, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch replies, how can I unless someone guides me? Indeed, that is why a seminary education is so important if you intend to crack open this ancient collection of literature we call the Bible and actually help people understand the context in which it was written so that it can still speak to us today. Philip has done two very important things. First, he gets up and crosses the room, if you will, this chasm that divides us all from one another, and he sits down with a stranger and an outcast at that. How else are the divisions among us to be overcome if we don't make the first move, reaching out? Then Philip asks the eunuch, if he understands what he's reading, not knowing, of course, that the eunuch understands it better than Philip ever could. I mean, just imagine, like if I were to ask Lori one day, as she sat reading Betty Friedan's 1963 classic, 
the feminine mystique. Do, do you understand what you're reading? Well, of course, she would probably say, what is happening here? Of course the eunuch gets it, but he then asks one of the most plaintive questions in all of scripture, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And the conventional Christian answer is these are words about Jesus. And Philip explains why, but I've always wondered if the eunuch does not wonder if the words are really written to him. Like a sheep to the slaughter, or in his humiliation, justice was denied him, and most of all for a man who cannot father children. How do you think he heard this question? Who can describe his generation? Philip explains that it is Jesus that Isaiah is talking about, and you would expect that answer from an apostle in the pseudo-history that is the Acts of the Apostles. But since I don't believe that Isaiah was really talking about Jesus when he wrote this, I think it's all about outsiders, all the outsiders who should come in. In fact, just a few chapters later, in Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5, here's what Isaiah wrote. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast my covenant, I will give in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, so to speak. So, Isaiah is on record saying even eunuchs will be welcomed into the reign of God because, well, God's love is unconditional. It is for everyone who is on the outside looking in, including the first century version of the man who is driving Miss Daisy, and some would say isn't really a man. He's an outsider by race, by religion, and by physical incompleteness. So, if eunuchs are welcome, then what sort of God are we talking about here? And what sort of religion is this way of Jesus? Apparently, it is the sort of religion that is on the lookout for those who are left out. Apparently, it is the kind of religion that sits down next to the stranger and pulls up a chair of welcome because, as Peter put it, truly, I believe God shows no partiality. So maybe Campbell was right when he said, our thoughts are not God's thoughts, even on our best days. And you know how the story ends. The eunuch's so overjoyed at the prospect that he too is a child of God that he shouts, look, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? That's a really good question. What is to prevent me from being baptized? There are a few preachers out there I would like to put this question to, especially those of the white male variety who think someone appointed them to be gatekeepers of God's love and God's table because, newsflash, nobody appointed you. On Thursday, Oklahoma City University held a little ceremony for, for those of us who were retiring from teaching, and so, you know, people say nice things about you and. Sean had to listen to them, and then <laughs> afterwards, someone came up and said, Robin, 
Is there anything you wish your students would never forget that you said in class? I thought, how odd, I was just thinking about that. And the answer came immediately to mind. I said, if they forget everything else, I hope they remember this. Either all of us matter or none of us do. And you've heard me say this many times. I'll say it many more times. Either all of us matter or none of us do. And if one of my former students remembers that, I will consider my teaching career to be wildly successful. Because I stand on the shoulders of all my teachers who taught me to speak truth to power without whom I would never have understood what I was reading sitting in the chariot of my white male privilege assuming that words written about those whose lives I will never understand are the ones who don't get it. They do get it because the gospel is a liberation story it's not a menu of salvation specials that you order up in a gilded church while singing about the blood atonement. It's not a special gift that you sing sweet, sticky songs about, as if in addition to all the stuff you've already got, God wants to give you even more, while from those who have nothing, those who are cut off from everything, God will take away what little they have and then close the temple door to outsiders. No shirt no shoes, no whatever, no service. When Lori talked recently in a sermon about doing same-gender wedding ceremonies here, she said that often couples will act astonished that they get to exchange their vows in here. That is, in this room, you mean we get to have our wedding in here? About whom does the prophet say this? about himself or about someone else. Philip gives the church answer and says it's about Jesus, but since Jesus has already said that he's in every stranger we meet, then the real answer is that Isaiah is talking to you and to you and to you and to you and even to you. You have to be real careful with that, even you last eye contact thing. <laughs> no offense. But, but what's more important is that we should be saying something else now. Namely, that at this moment, there may be somebody sitting outside of this building in their automobile chariot with the motor running, not certain if he can come inside here and be accepted. On that October day, a few years ago, when the Supreme Court affirmed the rights of same-sex loving couples to marry, even in Oklahoma. Dozens of couples ran right over here to Mayflower to get married. Pretty much they ran, to put it in an Acts of the Apostles way, hurry, 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 go. Because you know why they did that? Do you know why? Because they knew there was water here. What is to prevent me from entering the kingdom of right relationships? And the answer is nothing, nothing prevents it. So they came here in their chariots to this spot along the 63rd Street Road in search of water. And we opened our doors because we have water. And because we always need to be asking everyone who thinks they're in, are you sure you're in? Just as we must always ask those who think they are sitting permanently outside of God's love, are you sure you're out? I, I know you think you're out, 
but are you sure you're out? And believe me, after all those wedding ceremonies that night, everyone went away rejoicing. Why? Because instead of having another church meeting or changing the bylaws or developing new policies and procedures, all of which are important, someone just ordered the chariot of privilege to stop at the first available source of water, and it was right here. Do you know what it feels like to think that you are permanently out and then to be told you get to come in? About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Maybe it's none of the above. Maybe he says it about you. Maybe he says it about you. Really about me? Really, I'm in? Really? Because if this is true, then what do we call it? Do we have a name for this? I mean, what do you call it? Maybe we could call it, um, let's see. I can think of something. Let's call it church. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.